Toward the end of the book of Job, in chapters 38 through 41, God confronts Job. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. See, Job had accused God. He had impugned the way God runs the world. He was prepared to condemn God in order to defend his own righteousness. God's answer, i put that in quotation marks, his answer to Job consisted in a series of questions which are set in the context of creation, what one might call nature. By the way, there's a book, a recent book called Nature and Altering It. In the first chapter, the author spends discussing how that the word nature is used in at least six different ways, or 16 different ways. Um, in this sermon, I will use nature and creation interchangeably. Back to Job. The language is that of creation. The images come from creation. And it raises, I think, an important question as we read these chapters, one that we may not have considered or thought about. And that is, how do we view creation? How do we view nature? My assumptions going in to the sermon are, first of all, that creation is good. Secondly, that we are a part of creation. We are not separate from creation. And thirdly, that creation is not here primarily for us to use, but for us to love. In looking at the matter of happiness, the issue of love has come up consistently. In fact, we saw it at every turn in our sort of post-Galatian series, that beginning with knowing, which is to involve relationship, a dialogue, a conversation between the knower and the thing known, we saw how that the first temptation and the first sin was the desire to have knowledge without love. I just want the information. I don't want a relationship. I just want to know. I don't want to love. When it comes to the matter of happiness, we have seen love seems to be a given. The problem is, what are we supposed to love in order to gain or to have happiness? In a fallen world, we live under the false assumption or under the illusion that we can have happiness apart from the Creator. Thus, the loves that we have tend to be disordered out of sync. Um, we are those who are made in God's image called to love the creator. That's where our love is to begin. We are commanded to do so. We are to love him completely and unconditionally. And flowing from that call or that command is the call to love our neighbor as oneself, which means or strongly implies that we are in fact to love ourselves. You see, we see in the second commandment that the pattern for divine love of one's neighbor is love of oneself. And so it is important, in fact, that I have a right love for myself. This is what we looked at last week. That love of oneself is, in fact, a Christian duty. Such love can get out of sorts. It can be disordered. But that the call of Christian discipleship is to get rid of those disordered loves of self, disordered loves of other things and other people, so that, first of all, we might love the Creator as we should, and then we love other things, including ourselves, in Him. This helps explain, in part, the difficult sayings, and I mentioned a, a series of them last week. I'll only read one today from Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, 
he cannot be my disciple. It sounds rather harsh. But in fact, we love ourselves correctly when we love God more than ourselves, when he is our chief good, when we refer all our plans and we aim everything in our lives toward loving him. By doing that, it in fact appears that we hate ourselves, our parents, other things, because we love him first and everything else comes second. I've mentioned this many years ago, uh, how that Brutus is trying to explain why he killed his best friend, Julius Caesar. And he says, it was not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. In a sense, we are to love God more than we love ourselves, more than we love our neighbor, more than we love our family. And therefore, it appears that we hate them. But in fact, it is the truth that we love God first. In a real sense, we don't love ourselves or anyone or anything else if we don't love God. We may think we do, but we don't. And if we don't love God, then we really don't love ourselves, others or other things. So we saw last week a triple duty in these two commandments that we are to love God, we are to love our neighbor, and in fact, we are to love ourselves. You might be thinking, so far, so good. But where are we ever commanded to love creation? Because that is what I'm arguing today. I would answer that there is, in fact, no specific passage that directly or explicitly says, thou shalt love the creation. But that such an understanding is assumed throughout all of Scripture. Let me go back to my assumptions and more and try to explain them and see from them the command to love God's creation. First of all, creation is good. This is where we must begin the conversation. And if you and I cannot agree on this point, then in fact we really cannot go any further than this. Certainly we see from the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 1 that God saw that his creation was good. And it ends with the statement in verse number 31 of Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. But one might object, yes, that's, that's good, that's how creation was originally, but that was all destroyed by the fall and now creation has lost all goodness. I would beg to disagree. In the same way that we are still made in the image of God after Adam and Eve sin, in the same way creation retains a certain quality of goodness after the fall. By the way, I would just remind you of what God told Noah. This is in Genesis chapter 9. This is after the fall. This is after the flood. Humanity starting out with eight people. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. After the fall, humanity retains the image of the Creator. It's messed up, without doubt. And I remember what Francis Schaeffer used to say, that human beings are gods in ruins. We have the image of God, the creator, but we are in ruins. We bear his image. Okay. In the same way, we could argue that creation is marred, but it is not abandoned. It is not without value. It is, in fact, something to be redeemed, something that Jesus came to redeem, that he gave his life for. And therefore, creation is good. By the way, I see this as part of God's answer to Job in chapters 38 through 41. The point of the questions, I think, is very clear. God is saying, I'm God and you're not, Job. 
But in fact, creation is good. And we see the wonder of it in these chapters. So creation is good and it will one day be redeemed. But there's more to it than that. And our text tells us as much here in Psalm 19. I'd like to read the first six verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. a wonderful expression of God's creation. We read such things throughout the book of Psalms. That is, in creation, we hear, we see, we learn of God. But I'm not trying to argue that creation is good because, it is because of its utility, that somehow it does something and therefore it is good. It does have a certain purpose, what philosophers would call its telos. It has a certain function. But I I think it is good because the good God made it. And it has that quality of goodness. It reflects who he is. One author put it this way. While God sustains the world and works in it, the world has its own special goodness because of its created character. Paul tells the Colossians, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And therefore creation is good. In the matter of revelation, that is revealing who God is, we must consider that one only truly knows the world by trusting in God. That when we trust God, then in fact we come to see the world as we should. In theology, most people usually start with what is called general revelation. That is that you can know about God by looking at creation. And people would appeal to Romans chapter 1, where Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And then theologians traditionally go from general revelation to special revelation. And this is a specific type of revelation. First of all, in Jesus Christ, but then in Scripture, which is what we have. And here we can know of God through Scripture and through his Son. It has been suggested in a recent book that we've got the order reversed. That, in fact, we should begin with special revelation, with God's revelation in Scripture and in Jesus Christ, before we move on to creation. That special revelation pushes us outward and it helps us to understand the nature of reality and the nature of scripture. We can find evidence for God in creation, but that does not necessarily press us to find the God of creation or even to look for scripture. Special revelation shapes us, the readers of scripture, to see God as the creator and as the one who is at work in the world. We either will take this approach, that we look at scripture and then at nature, 
or we will have to rely on something else. And that something else in the modern period is reason. So reason and general revelation, somehow we will come to the truth. And slowly but surely, special revelation, scripture, is sort of pushed aside as being unnecessary. And then unhistorical, unscientific, uh, ridden with mistakes and simply pushed aside. Special revelation enables general revelation to make sense. From the scripture, we see the divine or the splendor of the divine workmanship in God's creation. See, if we see the goodness of creation and the reality of God's work in creation, then I think we begin to understand our place in God's world, that we are instruments of God's purposes. And we come to the place where we find we should love God's creation, the good creation. Ellen Chari, in her book on happiness, said, the moral clarity of the command is to encourage people to love themselves as instruments of the divine goal for creation. God has put us here. What we find in God's commandments, which we've looked at the last couple of weeks, is first, first people, it tells us that our obedience has consequences, and they're usually longer-term consequences. If we do what is right, if we obey him, then there are positive results. On the other hand, if we disobey him, there are negative consequences. But also, if you read the law closely in Exodus, in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you find that if we obey God, it allows God's creation to flourish. And when we disobey God, then creation suffers. In Leviticus 18, and also I think in Leviticus 22, God tells Israel that their obedience will cause the land to flourish. On the other hand, their disobedience will cause the land to vomit them out. Let me read to you. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. There is a connection between us and God's creation and our obedience and taking care and loving God's creation. Before moving on, let me mention another quote from Charing about the nature of happiness. It should now be evident it is enjoyment of ourselves, others, and the earth itself in obedience to God's call. And it is the celebration of that call by donating ourselves to the flourishing of creation. We're to donate ourselves to the flourishing of God's creation. I don't think we think in those terms. This leads to the second assumption, which I think is critical to the matter. We are a part of creation. We are not separate from creation. One of the heresies that the church has had to fight almost from the very beginning, from the late first century on, and it remains with us today in a different way, is the belief that the physical is inferior to the spiritual. And some would go so far as to say that the physical is really of no significance and the spiritual is all that matters. We hear it in our own tradition that one must believe in your heart. True enough. But Paul tells us that we are also to confess with our mouths. We need to recognize that we are part of creation of the material order. God has given us bodies. And I perhaps have put that the wrong way because it would seem that, okay, the soul is what is important. And God says, okay, here's a vehicle for the soul to travel around. Our bodies, this is who we are. This is what it means to be human. Uh, 
More often than not, in our conversations, or do I dare say in our thoughts, we carry on as though human and divine encounters take place mentally in our hearts, as we would say, as opposed to physically. But think a moment of our worship this day, so far this day and every Sunday when we gather. We have used our voices to sing, to pray, to read. We have used our ears to listen to the reading of scripture, to John's play, to the, to the speaking of praise and petition, to prayers. We have used our mouths, our teeth, our taste buds to eat and to drink that which has come from the ground, wheat for bread and grapes for juice. And this isn't just some disconnected reality. Those of you who suffer from wheat allergies know, in fact, that it is very real. We have stood. You are now sitting. The physicality of it all should not escape us. We are a part of God's creation. As one writer puts it, in truth, we know and love God in the same way that we know and love each other by means of our bodies. And it's not just Gnosticism, that ancient heresy that we're fighting against, it's modernity as well. I've mentioned this before, that one of the things that modernity has done, rather cleverly, it has separated things. And in part, what I've been trying to do in this series is to reconnect these things. So we see that the sacred is separated from the secular, eternal from the temporal, the soul from the body, grace from nature, faith from reason, truth from goodness, knowing from truth, and goodness from happiness. And I would add today from the sermon, ourselves from creation, ourselves from our bodies. I find that I am so much a child of the modern age, much more than I realize. I have to tell you something on myself now, which is somewhat embarrassing, but I hope enlightening. Guy and I sing the doxologies together before we go to bed. And sometimes one of our dogs, since we've finished our reading, sort of senses that we are going to sing and the dog will come up and join us. And it's actually a wonderful thing, particularly when we come to the line, praise him all creatures here below. And I think of them, of our dogs, of the cats that are outside, the birds in the daytime, the hummingbirds, the occasional raccoon that tries to break into the bin of the cat food. And I think of them as all creatures here below. This occurs to me that I think this sometimes as we're singing the doxology at the end of our worship service. But then I told Gia this the other night, it hit me. Wait a minute, I'm one of those creatures here below. That I've been singing in a sense as those creatures here below, look at them, they're praising. No, I'm a creature here below. We are part of creation. I'm not separate from it though I may tend to think of myself in that way. Several things to think or consider in this vein. First of all, creation is not here for us alone, as something to be used, that God said, okay, yeah, this is all yours, do with it what you want. In Psalm 104, we have a celebration of God's glory in creation. I'll only read a part of it to you. Psalm 104, beginning of verse 14. He makes grass grow for the cattle, and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. 
wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nest, the stork has its home in the pine trees, the high mountains belong to the wild goats, and the crags are a refuge for the badgers. We tend to focus on the verses that deal with us, and perhaps skim over the part that deals with God's creatures. One writer puts it this way, there is no suggestion that the cedars and the birds or the goats and the badgers are there for the sake of human beings. God cares for them and delights in them. They are good. So it's not here for us alone. Then something that I've already talked about, but now that we're in Psalm 104, we are embodied creatures. We have bodies. This is what it means to be human. Um, if we, acknowledge, if we refuse to acknowledge that, then the incarnation means little and resurrection means absolutely nothing. It makes no sense at all. And the purpose of us being embodied is to bring forth praise to God. Later in Psalm 104, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Another point is that creation is necessary for culture. Culture is what we humans make of creation, which means there is always something of the goodness of creation as we make things that we would call culture. It, they may be distorted, but in fact it is by us working in God's created world that we do culture. Another point, and I want to spend a bit of time here, creation is about glory as much as power. The reality of God's work in creation, including his continuing presence and all divine activities, oftentimes spoken of only in terms of power. Rarely, seldom do we hear it spoken of in terms of glory. And like you, I love the hymn, I sing the mighty power of God. Um, by the way, if you go to the second verse, I sing the goodness of the Lord. So it isn't just about power. But oftentimes, I think that's where we tend to stop. Whereas when we look at the Old Testament and it describes God's creation, glory is something that comes up time and time again. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. We have sung that in our opening hymn today. But listen to this last line. The whole earth is full of his glory. Some translations provide an alternate to this. The King James says, His glory is the fullness of the whole earth. The New American Standard, the fullness of the whole earth is his glory. In the English Standard, may his glory fill the whole earth. By the way, we, this has been mentioned earlier in Numbers chapter 14. God is irate. He is angry because of what his people have refused to do in going into the, the promised land. And so he pledges that they will not enter except for uh, Caleb and Joshua this whole generation will not enter the promised land. He says, nevertheless, as surely as I live, as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. 
And then God makes his promise. At the end of Psalm 72, which is the end of book two of the five books in the book of Psalms. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. In the second counter between the Lord and Job, we read, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? I think, well, Damon, there it is. It's, it's all about power, isn't it? The next verse. Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. We might expect power to be the issue and not glory. And if we do, I think we will fail to see oftentimes the glory of the creator as seen in his good creation. One more thing about creation. Creation is not our enemy. There is a flaw, a fault that runs through our world and through our lives and through ourselves. And the fault that runs through the world is not God's fault. And it is not the fault of nature either. It is ours. Francis Bacon uh, was seen or is seen as the pioneer of the scientific method. And he wanted practical knowledge that would help him, help humanity, uh, become, quote-unquote, capable of overcoming the difficulties and obscurities of nature. He wanted to be able to subdue and overcome the vexations and miseries that nature brings to endow the human family with new mercies. Knowledge for him, as with postmoderns, was about power, the power to control nature. For Bacon, it was power over nature. He believed that, in fact, if you could master nature, then you could bring about human well-being or happiness. This is a thinking that's been behind much scientific thinking since that time, including our own day. By the way, Bacon, as a Christian, believed that the fall had resulted in the loss of dominion that Adam and Eve no longer had dominion and their descendants no longer had dominion over creation. And he wanted to recover that and to recover it by science. And through science and the scientific method, we could observe nature and we could begin to figure out how to control it. In fact, to repair the loss of dominion, to reestablish Adam's dominion, was one of the objectives of the Royal Society in London. As a result... Human beings, Christian human beings, tend to see themselves not only as being over nature, but as against nature, that nature is the enemy. This is not true. But the modern age has taken this path, has taken this road. And the result is that we tend to exploit nature for our own purposes. We tend to think of nature as the enemy. Simply not the case. We are to have dominion, we are to care for, we are to love God's creation. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all abandon our cars and go live in caves somewhere. 
in rejecting the modern project's view, I'm not saying that we reject what has been accomplished, but rather the thinking that is behind it. And as God's people, we are to love God, we are to love our neighbor, we are to love ourselves, and we are to love God's good creation. We are to acknowledge that creation has goodness and a dignity of its own. It is not simply there for us. Hans Ruckmacher, in his book, Modern Art and the Death of a Culture, writes of a Dutch painter and contrasts him with a French painter. It's uh, Jan van Goyen, uh, end of the 16th century, beginning of the 17th century, and one of his contemporaries, uh, Nicolai Poussin, who uh, was French. He says the difference between this painting, this is by Poussin, it is the burial of some Greek hero, and Van Goyen's picture is striking. Van Goyen sings his song in praise of the world here and now, the world God created, the fullness of reality in which we live, if we only have, uh, if only through our eyes. Poussin dreams of an earthly paradise with great men, high humanity, but alas, a fragile and easily broken one, as if a dream that will never be fulfilled. And I love this last line. Van Goyen knows the world is not without its storm clouds. And this is the painting that Rookmarker is talking about. That it is not unspoiled. Van Goyen knows this. But basically, he loves the world in which he lives. I believe that we are called to love God's creation. Well, we're at the point of the sermon when we ask ourselves, so what? What is the point of all that we have covered today? Several things come to mind. I'm sure there are more. First of all, we are to acknowledge that creation is good. I think for some of us, that's major. That's, that's not a given. That's something we really have to work on, that creation is good. Secondly, we have to acknowledge that creation is not the problem. I think we tend to think that it's nature that is the problem. Thirdly, we must recognize that the creation reveals the glory of God. It's not just about God's power, but God's glory. We who are made in the image of the creator, who is love, are to be marked by love in our lives, as we saw in Sunday school in our discussion. We are to love God. We are to love ourselves, thereby having a pattern by which we can love our neighbor as we should. And we are to love God's creation. We need to remember that in loving, we find out who we are and we find happiness. The question is, okay, Damon, fine. I'm going to love creation. How do I do that? What is involved with that? With the Lord willing, we will look at that next time. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the wonder of your creation and how that your glory fills creation. We are so much children of our culture and of our age that we have such a utilitarian view of things. And I, I fear that we fail to appreciate the glory of what you have done and what you are doing. 
we live in a time in a world in which nature has been abused, severely abused. And while we would never agree to that, I wonder if we appreciate what in fact has been done. We thank you for your word, for your spirit who gives us understanding that we can understand and appreciate your creation and the glory of it. And we can learn that we are to love you, we are to love our neighbors, we are to love ourselves, and we are to love your good creation. Because this is where we are. We are a part of your created order. And we join with creation in worshiping and obeying you. Though I fear creation oftentimes does a much, much better job than we do. May we think on these things in the days to come. And consider what it means that your creation is good and that we are to love it. And how it is, in fact, we are to love your creation. We thank you for the rain today and how it cleanses things, makes everything seem so green. Thank you for bringing us here together. We ask that your spirit, your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please and sing the doxology together?